All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckaholics? What the fuck is happening? This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for joining me. It's a very exciting show today. It was a very exciting show for me to do. Uh, I interviewed David Byrne, uh, known from uh, being himself, David Byrne, and also from the Talking Heads, one of the greatest bands of the 20th century. So I was very excited to sit down with David at his office and have a conversation. Did not know how it would go. I think it went pretty well. I'll give you a little background on that in just a second. But this week is a pretty special week because you'll be able to hear the talk that I had with Terry Gross. Uh, You'll be able to hear it in two different places, friends. On Wednesday, Fresh Air on NPR will present a good chunk of the interview. Then on Thursday, the full interview will be that day's WTF episode. This was a big deal, people. This is a big deal for me. I'm sure I'll talk to you more about it before the show on Thursday, but Terry Gross is the the standard. She is the the industry standard, the best, the best of the best interviewers, and I was nervous to interview her, especially in front of people, but it went great. It was an amazing experience, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that uh, on the day, that being Thursday. Anyways, let's talk about David Byrne. Let's talk about a genius you know, I, I love interviewing people, and, and God knows I've interviewed a lot of people, but some people I get kind of nervous about, about interviewing because I, I have this respect for their output, this respect for their creativity, for, their, for their, um, the amazing things that they've done. And David Byrne is one of those people, and I had no idea what he would be like. I didn't know if he'd be sociable. I didn't know, you know what, what it would be like. Because my experience of David Byrne is almost exclusively through, uh, through the Talking Heads music and some of his solo stuff. I was introduced by David Byrne by my first girlfriend in college, Sarah, who, uh, who had half of her head shaved in a little patch, uh, you know, wore uh, you know, Doc Martens and uh, was basically uh, pretty punk, pretty, uh, yeah, more than me. And I remember that she had, I think she had Remain in Light, if that's possible, is that when that came out? And she would play that, and I'd be like, yeah, I don't know if I get it. And then she turned me on to you know, the other stuff, I believe, Fear of Music, and the first record, which I had when I was a kid, because I got it from the record store that gave it to me. They gave me a box of records, because they only played R&B, gave me all these rock records. But I think the only, one, the only song I listened to when I was in high school of the Talking Heads was Take Me to the River, the, the, the cover. And maybe uh, maybe big country. I always liked big country, but I don't think I really wrapped my head around the Talking Heads till later in college when I went to see Stop Making Sense. Wow! Oh, Stop Making Sense. Oh yeah, man. Do you remember that when that came out? I don't know if you're old enough. I don't know if you are. But I had an experience there that because I was dating Sarah. I, it couldn't have been for that long. It must have been one of our first few dates because it was at the Coolidge Corner Movie House, and I believe she was working at an, another movie theater. That was also like owned by the same people or they had an understanding. I don't know, but it was a date. Now, I had spent that day tripping on mushrooms with my friends. I remember that. We spent the day tripping on mushrooms, but I had to meet her at the movie place at the theater to see the premiere of Stop Making Sense. And I know she really loved the talking heads. I didn't know what to expect. I was a little trippy still. But the one thing that I remember outside of the movie blowing my mind we got there. We got to the show. I was sitting with her. And this is you know, early in the relationship, maybe one of the first few dates. I don't even know if we had had sex yet or what. I'm not sure what had happened at that point. But we were towards the back of the theater, and I was sitting next to her. 
and uh, the movie had started, and it, and I was into it, but like you know, I, I was coming down, you know, and things were tweaky around the edges, and I dozed off, and I, in the movie, I dozed off, and I woke myself up with the sound of my own fart, sitting beside a woman who I had been on maybe three dates with. This was not a good situation. You don't know what to do in that situation. It's unclear. Do you bring it up? Do you, I mean, I don't remember the depth of the experience. You know, I'm trying not to be too crass. I don't remember if it was smelly or whether it was a big problem for everybody. But I do remember the intense embarrassment uh, of that moment and just kind of looking over at her and wondering if she heard it. I don't know how she could not have heard it. And, and, and all this is going on as David Byrne is jumping around in a giant suit on screen. I can only say that he must have buffered that situation because we did end up staying together after that. We made it through that horrendous experience so early in a relationship where that's really unacceptable. It shouldn't be. I mean, you should be able to do that, but it's not. It's just not the way life works. It just isn't. It, you shouldn't have. There shouldn't be that much shame carried uh, around something that you know has to happen. It's got to happen somewhere. Not in your sleep in a movie theater, crowded movie theater next to a girl you just started dating. That's not where it has to happen. I should have controlled that, but I was sleeping and I was coming down from mushrooms. So it was probably amplified, the experience for me. But as I said, we made it through and that's, uh, that's, my, that's my memory of uh, the Stop Making Sense movie. Aren't you happy I shared that? Folks, my experience uh, leading up to the David Byrne interview, I was in New York. It was set up. You know, I went back and I listened. I, I still listen to Fear of Music a great deal like pretty compulsively. But I went and listened to uh, more songs about buildings of food. I, I listened to Talking Hands 7 to 7. I listened to Remain in Light. Then I listened to The Knee Plays. And I listened to uh, uh, David Byrne, the Catherine Wheel, the music for uh, the Twyla Tharp dance production. The Knee Plays was for the, what's his name, Robert Wilson. But I used to like that stuff. And the stuff he did, uh, oh, uh, what is it? My Life in the Bush of Ghosts with Brian Eno. I mean, he did some great shit. The later Talking Heads stuff, the, the, uh, and then the salsa music. Anyways, David Byrne, I dumped my head full of David Byrne and then I was waiting to go to his office and I was walking around New York City and I went and got a coffee down the corner down on Canal Street somewhere and the uh, the Bee Gees were playing. It was a soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever and then I thought that like, wow, this was this was coinciding with the beginning of the of the uh, of the talking heads. I mean, the talking heads helped destroy disco. It was part of the movement against that. But then evolved into sort of this its own sort of dance music, and all this was going through my head. Like, and I thought the experience of listening to to that music as I was waiting to go talk to David Byrne would he would somehow appreciate that that there was connections being made, and that I opened my mind up to musical textures and what that was um, provoking in my mind, and maybe I just opened my conversation talking about the Bee Gees. But uh, I did not do that. I did not do that. What I did was I took the elevator up and uh, I met David Byrne and I tried to, you know, I, he was just a guy and I know he's just a guy, but David Byrne has his own groove in life. You know, he has, there, there's something so familiar about the way he moves and the way he talks and the way he looks. If you're a fan of the Talking Heads or if you're a fan of anybody, you kind of lock in. This guy was an important part of my life for many years and I still play his music. So uh, I didn't talk about the Bee Gees. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't. I'll tell you what I talked about. At the beginning, we start talking about his new project, Contemporary Color. These are 
color guard competitions that David Byrne conceived, where the color guard teams perform with live music from St. Vincent, Ad Rock, from the Beastie Boys, Toon Yards, Nelly Furtado, and a few other people. Uh, this is, is going to be a live performance. Leave it up to David Byrne to bring certain things together that you would never assume would work together. And I know very little about color guard, so I was happy to talk to him about it. It will be, uh, it will be at Toronto's Air Canada Center on June 22nd and 23rd and the Barclays Center in Brooklyn on June 27th and 28th. So with no further ado, let's enter the offices of David Byrne, which are filled with books and music and and people working on things i think it's the toto mundo uh, is the name of his uh, his company nice people at his office and very very inviting warm the kind of people you'd think would be working for david byrne but it was it was very warm and it was a, a lovely conversation and i really didn't know what to expect i didn't know how forthcoming it would be or or how it would go but i never do so enjoy my conversation with uh, david byrne that does not include the bgs privilege and an honor to meet you david byrne you too you too it's do you hear that a lot an honor once in a while and it's always very very flattering <laughs> it never wears thin i uh, uh, i have like uh, strange memories of uh uh like you uh on record and in screen on screen but there's two very specific memories i have of you in, in person that you would not share with me you would not know that they happened uh-huh. I was on an airplane with you once. Uh, I was not, I was, it was much younger. I don't remember, it must be like 25, 30 years ago. I'm a big fan. And I saw you sitting there. And then after everyone got off the plane, we were all standing around a baggage claim that was, there was nothing coming out. And it was going on a long time. And then you had somehow gone to another baggage claim. And this is just very specific to what I know of you. And you just went, over here. With a very to, unique David Byrne movement. <laughs> <laughs> to tell everybody. Right. But the movement. Our was, bags are over here now. But it was so specifically you that, like, you know, there was just a way that, you know, you move through the world. I'm like, that was so David Byrne, that movement. Oh, it was very, a very choreographed kind of movement. <laughs> exactly. Oh, geez. <laughs> okay. And then there was another time I saw you drive by in a bicycle in Chelsea. And you had lights on your, maybe on your ankle. Is that possible? Yeah. That is possible. That's possible. And yes, I tried that for a while. You did? <laughs> yeah, like a little uh, trouser clip yeah. that actually had flashing lights on it. Exactly. So uh, Very geeky, but... Uh, but Right, but there was something to, to me, like I saw you drive by and I didn't say anything. I'm like, that's, that's David Byrne. But then it became more significant to me that it was David Byrne when all I saw was a bouncing light. <laughs> I was like, that's very creative. <laughs> He's effortlessly uh, artistic. He's just a fading uh, light. Just a fading light on a leg going exactly, up and down. Exactly. It's like so minimal. This is perfect. The guy's amazing. So I, we should start talking, I guess, about what's going on now, what I just watched, and then okay. move backward. Now, I don't know anything about Color Guard. It, it, it seemed to at one time be a military thing. Is that? Probably way, way back, way back. Yeah. Um, okay. Our really uh, long story short, in a, in mid June, we're doing these events, these spectacles at Barclay Center Arena in Brooklyn and uh, the Air Canada Arena in Toronto, and they bring together ten 
color guard teams and 10 musical acts. So it's color guard doing their thing, like 10 six-minute programs with live music that's mm-hmm. been written specially for them. Okay, now, but then you go, well, yeah, but what is that? Right. <laughs> and I didn't know until recently. Well, it's obviously a culture, like many things have this culture that we don't know about until someone goes, have you seen this? And you're like, oh my God. That's been around all the time? Yeah. Yes, it's one of those kind of things where right. it's like, that's been going on all yeah. I, People do that? Yeah. Yeah. So this one, uh, I know that it, it's during the fall season, it's associated with football, marching bands, right. drum lines, all that kind of stuff. And they, they, they are outside and they kind of get in formation and toss their flags up and toss their rifles up in the air and all that kind of stuff. Off season is when they get more creative. And that's kind of what I saw first. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a DVD of their championship cause they licensed some music and it, uh, so they move into gymnasiums and they get very creative where it's kind of thematic aspects of dance and tossing the flags, still tossing the flags and rifles. And they sometimes have a, a message or a story or s- some subject that yeah. they're, they're dealing with. So it, it's no longer connected with football or marching band or any of that kind of stuff. And they usually use pre-recorded music, mm-hmm. a song or instrumental or whatever like that. And that's what I saw, and I thought, this is kind of an incredible art form out there in, in America, kind of vernacular art form. Nobody where I live knows about it. Sure. And I thought, but what, yeah, what if it had live music instead of the pre-recorded stuff uh-huh. that they use? Wouldn't that kind of kick it all up a notch and make it more exciting? So that's, that's what this thing is. And it's, yeah, so when I and, you know, our little office here started approaching them, it was like, what, what? Who, who are you? What, what is this? What could this <laughs> yeah. be about? This is not our world. Right. Um, to them, this was like an, you know, a foreign world intruding into their no, no, world. These worlds you're talking about, you're talking about basically the, the, the art and music world of, of New York uh-huh. and, and the, the greater America. To some extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no color guard teams in New York City. In as Soho. Far as I know. No, there's no so, Soho color guard represented. No, no. Although that could be coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's an interesting sort of uh, uh, straddling of, of worlds that I think you've done a lot. You know, throughout your career, you're trying, you're, you're, your understanding of what America is has, has sort of shifted and, 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 mm-hmm. and something you've engaged in. I mean, even like, even a song like, like let's go back now. So even a song like, uh, like Big Country, where there, uh-huh. there's this idea of, uh, of flying over America. What, is your, what do you think your evolving relationship with the, the difference between New York and America is at this point? Um, is that too broad? No, no, no. At that time, I intentionally wrote that, that song, Big Country, that Talking Hits song. I wrote that um, in a way to kind of have this kind of cliched idea of the New Yorker, you know, Bohemian right. New Yorker kind of looking down their nose right. at the rest of right. the country. Yeah. And, um, and so yet, there's a satire. It's a little bit of a satire, but it's also a satire of kind of the image of what I'm supposed to be. Right. Oh, I'm supposed to be that kind of jaded New Yorker <laughs> who looks down on the countryside. But you're not. But I'm not. Right. Um, I'm not. Or at least I try not to be. Right. Um, and over years, I've kind of chipped away at that. I find things going on out in the country that uh, I go... That's incredible, and it's kind of completely under the radar mm-hmm. somewhere else. And look what they're doing out there. We should learn from that, uh, in some cases, or we should appreciate that. Elevate it. We should elevate it. It's just as good as any other kind of 
fancy schmancy stuff that's sure. going on here and uh they're doing it by themselves and nobody know, nobody in the kind of one of the worlds of new york times or whatever else knows about this stuff right. uh wouldn't it be nice to give it some support or or put it in a new context where people kind of look at it in a different way and yeah. they don't just they don't just see it as oh yeah that's that's crazy stuff that high school kids do right well it's interesting that dialogue though is, is that because like even through like you know true stories and all like because i to me in my mind when i was younger that that what what you were doing with the talking heads and even after the talking heads it was so specific and so uniquely yours but also very specific it, it was an integration of, of of popular culture popular music and 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 the art world you, yeah, to some extent, yeah, yeah. You seem to be the guy that it ran through somehow or another. Okay. And I never felt that any of it needed to be um, distant or hard to understand. Right. Or I felt like there's, there's always got to be a way to make it accessible. Right. No matter how arty it is, you can make it accessible. If it's a, if it's a cool idea or makes you feel good or whatever, there's a way to do that without it being like, oh, that's... Yeah, that's not, we, that's not for us. Yeah, that's Who not for us. Who do they think they no, are? No, you, you can make it so it, it's kind of accessible to everybody. Well, when did you start thinking that way, though? I mean, was it before the music? I mean, was it something that you, you, you entered your creativity knowing that you're like, I can make this understandable or I can make, you know, what I do uh, mainstream yeah. in a way? Yes, yeah. I think I heard that in the music growing up when mm-hmm. I was growing up. Oh, stuff in the late 60s when I was in high school. Uh-huh early 70s and all the and whether it was r&b or rock or whatever it was called at that point what were you listening to do you think it like, was, what was it? really really normal stuff you know like rock stuff like whether it would be the beatles or Jimi hendrix or the whatever right any, any what was your first stuff? memories of, of music like how young were you when you started playing things i must have been about 13 or something like that when you started playing instruments trying yeah not very well what was trying, the first one? Oh, i remember trying to play guitar but i and i had violin lessons as a child it didn't take very well no. but <laughs> thank goodness yeah they, and uh you wouldn't be doing this uh, but, color guard thing if you were a violinist but those some of those you know some of the rock groups some of the r&b groups whether it was curtis mayfield temptations uh-huh. whatever all they all started getting a little more experimental and right. adventurous in kind of late 60s early 70s and yeah. kind of people doing all kinds of different things isaac hayes whatever sure uh not to kind of make any kind of uh nostalgia i i don't have a nostalgic bone in my body but that's that's when i grew up uh-huh. that's when i heard that stuff and i thought this is possible it's possible to do really kind of not difficult but sophisticated stuff that's experimental that pushes the edge and it's still popular it's still in the top 40 sure and it still appeals to ordinary people right like me and i listen to it and i go wow that's really innovative and yet it's still in the top 40 and that still happens that still happens but that's that was really formative well it's different then because i mean you you were you know you're at least old enough to remember that you know a pop song was a pop song there was no experimenting. It's, I mean, when you were a young child. Yes. That, yes. you know, you had your, your first verse, the second verse, the refrain, then maybe a little instrument, and then the exactly. closing verse, and you're You out. had to do that. Yeah. And that was it. And yeah. then you hear people kind of breaking the mold and changing the way the music sounds and the kind of words that they use and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, the 60s broke it all open. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, that's a, that is a possibility. When you say you don't have a nostalgic bone in your body, what does that mean, really? I don't look back as like, oh, that was a golden age or things were better when New York was, was, 
right. shittier or um, <laughs> not at all. You don't do that. <laughs> no, I don't do that. Um, I mean, there are certain you can look at certain things and go there was that was a good aspect uh, at a certain time. But I don't look at it. Like, oh, things were better then or. I don't you, think like that. Well, because I was thinking about this coming over, and because, like, I know, like, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I looked at your book. I was at McSweeney's, I think, in San Francisco when I first saw the hardback cover of the, of the new book. What's the new, how, how music, music works? works. <laughs> and I looked through that and I'm like, oh my God, he's, he's, he keeps working. He keeps doing things. He's, <laughs> it's, and, and like, there's things I've missed, but it, but what's interesting to me is I go back and I, you know, there's, you know, I listen to, to Fear of Music fairly regularly. Wow. When you hear someone say that, do you think like, but I've got this other stuff that I do? Or do you, do you, are you able to say like, I, that, that's great that you listen to that? Yes, I'm able to say it's great that you listen. I'm totally flattered. What was that? Was it Jonathan Leth- Latham? Yeah, Jonathan wrote, Latham. He wrote, wrote a book basically oh, on, on, the, that, oh, on the, that record. On the 33 and the third series, the little. I think he did based on that record. Oh, really? Did you read it? No. I, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's well written and it's good and it's interesting and, and it's more I think about his, how his it experience. affected his experience, how it affected him, what he was going through at that moment. It's not a song by song analysis of the right, record right. in that way. When you when you think of the Talking Heads, because do you does it just feel far away? Uh, no, no, it feels yeah a little bit. I mean, it feels like oh that was something I did at that point point in my life. Um, I'm aware that a certain, certainly a certain generation knows more of that stuff than they know what I've right. done in the last sure, 10 years. Sure. But it depends. There's other people who know what I did recently more than they know the old stuff. It was kind of like, oh, you, did, you were in a band before this? And, um, oh, really? <laughs> there's a little bit of that. Not that much, but there's a little bit. <laughs> and what do you say to that? You're like, yeah, I had a thing. It's not yeah, a- yeah, it was a thing. <laughs> and uh, it, was, and then I go, it, was, yeah, it was pretty popular for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, but to talk about if we frame it in a non-nostalgic way and, and just talk about it as a, as a creative evolution for you i mean where did where did you grow up where were you born i grew up in here comes baltimore uh-huh. and you my, were, my family came from scotland uh before that with me when i was really little so you were born in scotland born in scotland they came to, first to canada and then i don't know five or six years later to baltimore do you remember canada I remember just a little bit. Right. So Baltimore cold, was most cold. of it. Yeah. Yeah. And what was your dad? What was he do? do he worked he do? at Westinghouse as a as an engineer, electronics engineer, designing things or yeah, designing things, uh, not stoves and uh, right. microwaves, but like probably missile guidance systems. Oh, he was uh, stuff oh, like in Baltimore, st- right? St- so. They had like something like that in yeah. Canada, but the main one that was doing that kind of stuff was in Baltimore. So your dad would go away to a non-disclosed location <laughs> and come back and yeah. no questions kid yeah it wasn't quite like that but yes yes there was kind of that and i would go so what yeah so what are you working on uh and it was just kind of, it's not interesting it's uh-huh. not interesting i, I don't think he, he wasn't you know my parents were kind of peaceniks and uh-huh. they, they weren't he wasn't particularly proud of the that he was maybe designing missile guidance systems or something like that he must have been one of the guys that could he was one of the guys that could he loved the problem solving uh-huh. uh, aspect of it. Uh-huh. I remember there was one time they sent him somewhere because they were having a problem with a, a submarine, right. oh, like really? in uh, Newport News or yeah. wherever that that port is. He came back and it was one of the I think one of the first times I saw him really proud of his abilities in that. Where he, he said, 
I fixed it with a coat hanger. <laughs> fixed the submarine with a coat hanger. I thought, oh, geez. Okay, that's... Uh, that's <laughs> you know, I felt proud for him, too, that yeah, he right. had the ingenuity. <laughs> yeah. It sounds very Russian or whatever. Right. To, to do that, and, but I'm also kind of looking around the house and going... That's the way he fixes stuff around the house. Uh, and that doesn't always stick, right? Yes. And it holds for a while. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to be in that submarine six months from now. Right. So, how, uh, so they weren't musical necessarily? No, no. And what was it that like, locked you into the music thing? Oh, like any kid, I think in my teens, yeah. you start to hear some stuff on, in those cases transistor radio but it's right. the same of hearing something sure. on your phone or whatever and uh it's you realize it's coming from another world different than the little suburban right place you're at and that it's a world that sounds really exciting that's kind of directed towards where you're going to be in a few years right. where you're yeah. going to be where your yeah. head's going to be at in a few years and go that's it it's like they're sending a signal and it's coming it's directed to me and everybody like me yeah. around the yeah. country this right. is a direct thing of course it's coming through like am radio or something, right. something like sure. that but we think it's being right we think they they found us right and we've and we've found it and yeah. then we've got a common link so then you just go here here it is i i need to be part of this, this whatever is, it is this weird grown-up world that yes yes elsewhere yes i'm gonna learn how to play a guitar or i'm gonna buy some records and figure out what this is so guitar was the first love the first instrument yeah yeah so all right so now when you decide to get out what did you in high school you did all right okay it did okay and yeah. then you went to you went to where to go to college i went to an art school uh rhode island school of design oh that's right that's the fancy that's like RISD. it's yes, got its, its own RISD. mythos yes it does um and i have to say that although i enjoyed the arts the art stuff it was more of a social, I think, revelation to me than an artistic one. What, what was the art, the medium that you were there for ostensibly? I, well, what would it have been? Did, it have, did you have to have one? Is that how You it had to have one, but I realized that, uh, that a degree in fine arts or whatever it was right. going to be was basically useless for getting a job. So <laughs> you realized why, that? Yes, I And you wanted realize, to get a job? Well, I did. I thought... I'll get, you know, at that time you thought, I'll get a day job. And, right. But this is... You're playing guitar pre- already. Yeah, and the creative stuff is what I really wanted to do. I didn't have a career plan, but right. I thought, that's what I really want to do. Uh, and the, a degree is going to be useless. Um, so I'll just get as much out of the school as I possibly can. So I kind of switched my major all the time. Yeah. From, like, photography to right. painting to uh, whatever whatever else it might be graphics design sure. whatever i just kept switching and uh that way i got to use uh all i got to learn as many different techniques right as i possibly and could. also I got to work in a dark room or use the printmaking stuff or whatever and also be exposed to i what i imagine would be very contemporary artists at the time that most of the 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 the, the things that were happening at that time RISD was on top of it wasn't some dry kind of historical were, school but RISD was very is i might still be um, I don't know. At that time, it was uh, there was a lot of cool stuff happening, but on another level, it was very traditional. Mm-hmm. For the kind of first couple of years or whatever, you had to learn how to draw. You had to learn. You had to sit and draw. Right. Still lifes and naked people and all that kind of stuff. And other kind of schools, they didn't. They 
threw that out the window. Right. They, they, kind, of, they, they kind of felt like, no, you have to learn. Get a these, craft in place. Yeah, you have to get a craft in place. Um, so, yeah, I, I went. But the thing that hit me the most was not the artistic stuff, yeah. what, which was great and everything, and was the whole social thing. that I met people. You know, I grew up in a little suburb of Baltimore. And uh, so all of a sudden I was meeting more black people, Jewish people, rich people, fancy people, uh-huh. people from California. <laughs> from California? From California, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, all of that. And yeah. people like that, that sounds kind of... No, no, I get it. It sounds really it's, dumb. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, and it was mind-blowing. Yeah. I, I might have had heard or read or something yeah. that these people existed. <laughs> right. That their lives were completely different right. than mine. Their upbringings were completely different, but you... You might have heard about it or read about it, but you can't really imagine it until you, you're talking with some, having a beer with somebody, sure. and you're just talking about how things were when they grew up, and you realize that is not my world at all. Yeah, that person is from another world. Yeah, their references are completely different than mine. I still feel that, and, but that's fascinating to you all the way through the life, right? Yeah, yeah, but that was when it was really hit me, like, and it was simple that, uh, that we're all not we're uh, we're all the same in some ways, but sure. we're all not the same. In so many other ways, but but that 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 you remember that having that much impact, and these are just people maybe in California or from an inner city. Yeah, these are all people in art school, right? I exactly. Mean, this, it's, it's, yeah, this is hardly yeah. a wide range, right, of, right. of society. Yeah, these are not people that escaped Russia necessarily. Yes, no, but that's funny because that weird kind of like you're almost like shocked into this compulsive empathy about you know somebody else's life and world. Mm-hmm. That curiosity has driven the music all the way through. Your music. I guess so, yeah. yeah. Mm. Hey, you think I'm overstating it? No, no, no. No, there was, there, that has never changed, that kind of curiosity. Did you have a band in high school? Yes. I had a band for a little while in high school. That did, in junior high, did not go well. How many songs? Like a four-song band? Or did you yeah, have a something whole? like that. Four-song <laughs> band. You'd play like a battle of the band in the school cafeteria, and the other band would come over, sneak behind, and pull out the plug. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, I thought, oh. Do you remember the set? It was a level of ruthlessness. Yeah, yeah and the, music. Yeah, and music that <laughs> I didn't know about. A lesson you needed to learn early. <laughs> yes. What, do you um, remember the set list? It was probably whatever was, everybody was probably like, I can't get no satisfaction and stuff sure, like that. That sure. seemed fairly easy to play. Three chord yeah. rock kind of stuff that you could play. And then I kind of, that, without that band, kind of decided to do go alone, go it alone, and started learned acoustic guitar started playing in kind of local coffee houses oh really kind of folk folk venues you were doing and then but not playing folk music i started playing kind of rock music on a in acoustic guitar ukulele Uh and and violin i still had the violin um really do you like i would play fairly aggressive rock songs on a ukulele um these original compositions no, okay. there was nothing original. It so was there all was discovers. There was something I- ironic and funny about it then as well. Yeah, or I was taking it and giving it a twist. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't. It wasn't. It was meant to kind of not skew the material, but kind of throw it out of context so you heard it in a different way. Ah. And what happened was, you know, because I loved the material that I was, the bands and stuff I was. Do you remember learning. what you were playing on the ukulele? Um, heavy, heavy guitar stuff, but I would do it on a ukulele. <laughs> And it was to kind of throw it in a new context so people could hear, right. hear the actual song right. instead of just hearing what, you know, the cliche that they knew. How were you received? People really liked it. They said, they said 
who wrote the, I mean, this is like a folky crowd. Right, right, sure. And they'd never heard, any, oddly enough, they'd never heard any of these songs because they're isolated in their little folky right. ghetto. Yeah. And they hear this stuff and go, who wrote that yeah. stuff? And I go, I'm thinking to myself, this is just a big hit on the radio, <laughs> on the, you know, pop, what, FM, AM radio. Yeah. And I thought, they're in, they don't know this stuff. So yeah. I said, this is working in my favor. <laughs> <laughs> I got something going. I got to build out my catalog. I got yes, to get a yes, bigger set list. Yes, I do. Yeah, come back with some uh, some Hendrix stuff. <laughs> I'm just not going to know what's going on. So then at RISD, you, you put together the original heads? Kind yeah, there was a, um, or a band that kind of led into it. There was the, the drummer and uh, the drummer Chris and I, and when some other people were in a, in a band there, and we played school what dances. What was it called? The Artistics. Yeah. And we played school dances and out, you know, outdoors on the patios and things like that. And we were incredibly noisy. But then we started to have, a re- I started to write stuff for the band. Right. So then there was started some original stuff. And I realized, oh, I know how, to, I can do this. Sure. This is some, this right. Is, uh, what I was the first sh- song you wrote that you thought like, wow, this is it? Psycho can- Killer. Was, really? Was that, was that, that was early? Like, yeah, that was like proof of concept. Oh, um, yeah. Let me see if I can write a song. And I had a concept. Um, and I just went with, followed the concept. It wasn't me expressing something about myself. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, let me see if I can write a song. And here's what the subject's going to be. And here's the, kind of the way I'm going to approach it. And I realized, oh, it works. And then further on, you go, oh, it works. And people like it. Right. Um, I guess I know how to do this. And after that, after that one song, I thought, okay, I used that to see as, you know, writing about something that basically I didn't care about at all. I didn't give a shit about the subject. But then I thought, everything else is going to be actually come from me in a little bit more from now on. Right. After song number one. Point every, of view. Yeah, everything else is not directly me, but it's, it's more, I can defend it. Right. In some way. Or in, in Psycho Killer, so that was just sort of an experiment. It was almost a, a, a joke in a way. Well, not really a joke, but kind of a, yeah, an exper- definitely an experiment to see, like, can I write a song? Yeah. And it was just you and Chris. It was me and Chris and his girlfriend at the time, Tina. And Oh, so she was there, too. Yep, yep. She was, definitely just... help, she was helping with the, the French part there. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> you didn't know any French, but you asked I knew, Tina. Like, I knew it a little bit, but not well enough. How did you meet Jerry Harrison? Uh, we were a trio. We then, so we got we went to New York, formed um, what became Talking Heads. But what, was, where'd the name come from? Do you remember? A kind of a B movie that was on television. Uh-huh. We were looking at TV Guide. And right. It was called whatever The Talking Head. Or, oh, really? Okay. Or something like yeah. that. And, and we thought, oh, that's yeah. And it was some kind of sci-fi horror movie. Right. And we thought, oh, that's a good. That's a good. Let's try that one. And we because we changed band names. This is before we played audition and played anywhere mm-hmm. we i would make kind of drum heads for the bass drum for the kick drum and put a different band name on like every week just kind of like let's see how it feels to be called the dots <laughs> you did that every week yes i'd make a, a you know a circular piece of cardboard yeah and then as your fan base group people were going like why don't they get their own drums <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> why do they got to use other bands drums all the time yes who are the what dots is <laughs> what, is, what is this um so yeah eventually we realized okay we 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 got this we can kind of do this i think we need to have a fourth person to kind of actually flesh out the sound and 
we were all big fans of uh, this group that Jerry was in, The Modern Lovers. Jonathan Richmond. Yeah. It's a great record, that first yeah, record. Yeah, just amazing. Um, and so we knew that Jerry was sort of, I guess what you would say, out of a job. And somewhere that band kind of parted ways. They did quickly, right? I mean, they did it fairly quickly. Right after they recorded these incredible demos that got released as a record, They Jonathan decided that he wanted to do go kind of more acoustic and right and uh whatever. more childlike more childlike and that that stuff was a little more too aggressive and, and sad or ang- angry or whatever for him but uh so the band was kind of left at loose ends and or some of them anyway so we went to jerry and said you want to try playing with us for a little bit come down and rehearse see yeah. what you see if you like it um and we tried a few gigs, like in, we did a gig in like Worcester, Mass. At, uh, at some so little places. Worcester. Yeah, to see if Jerry liked the idea, because he was really scared of dipping his toe in the water. Really? After he'd just been through the, his, you know, the band. So he's a little heartbroken. His heart was broken. Yeah. And he didn't want to like, I'm not going to go back into that. Right. Uh, and eventually he did. And yeah. it really kind of took us to another level, because then with four people, you the, the songs... Everybody wasn't trying to carry everything in the songs. Right, right. You could, you could change the texture. He could play a keyboard on one song and a guitar on a different song. You or, could trust people a little different, a little yeah, more. Yeah, like you could you play do there. And yeah, work. you do that. You play this part. I'll play this part, and together we'll kind of, it kind of, we'll flesh things out. Well, that became sort of like because it seems to me that you know, as you know, the more musicians you play with, and even the Talking Head stuff, that there was a real consciousness of of keeping it sparse, but but letting things stand on their own. Absolutely, with, that was kind of an art school thing in a way. Yeah, that the the the, the sounds had to have integrity. Um, every sound had to be what it was, and not pretend to be something else. And everything, at least was, that's, this is the way I interpreted it, and that everything, um, you should be able t- to hear it in its kind of pristine form. Right. So there was very little like distortion or any right. of that kind of stuff. That all came later, but um, <laughs> yeah. it was kind of like, we're going to st- have strip everything down to its basics. It's going to be very clean and just a, like a clean sketch. Uh-huh. The barest bones of what you need. And you all agreed on that. This is a discussion yeah, you yeah. had. I don't, I don't remember the discussion, but it was all kind sure. of tacitly agreed. understood. Yeah, that that's that's what we were going to do. And you did that for like at least the first two albums. Yes, I would say so. And then kind of, then, th- yeah. then we get kind of went we can do crazy. add more people. Yes, and if we're, we're not willing to compromise the integrity of the sound, we can bring that guy in. Yes, he's the master of that noise. <laughs> yes, and then we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so. I guess the other question that I have, and we'll move through it. We're not being nostalgic. We're just discussing. Okay. The scene in New York, because like I've been curious personally after reading, like, you know, I read McNeil's book, you know, the uh, Police oh, Kill yeah. Me book. Uh-huh. And that, you know, just the thought of, of how many different types of bands were here in the, in the early to mid 70s and, and running around this, this neighborhood, pounding away at CBs and everything else, and how they all define themselves. Do you remember that period well? Was there a competitive nature to the scene? Oh, no. It was, uh, I remember it pretty well. Um, I was maybe a little socially withdrawn, so I wasn't like hanging out with everybody. But we were all in the same bars and hanging out and yeah. playing music. I remember it as being fairly uh, supportive, mm-hmm. that each band was kind of very supportive of each other. Um, they would check out each other's sets and applaud and oh, really? hang out at the bar when the other one is playing. And 
Um, Do you remember bands that you liked watching? Oh, yeah. Like who? Um, in that period, kind of yeah. playing sometimes on the same bill with us would be television or Ramones or yeah. talking, uh, Patti Smith. There were other groups, like the Mumps, uh, later on, like Dead Boys. and Oh, yeah. But oddly, okay, those are the ones, some of the, those are ones that people remember and they get documented in right. some of the, the, those books that have been written. But there was all these other ones. There was like folk, there was like a kid... Um, Steve Forbert, a folk singer from Mississippi, who came in and he became part of the yeah. thing. Not punky at all. Yeah. There was another like progressive jazz group. I forget what they were called. They were like a progressive jazz group where they'd gone to Berkeley or whatever. Oh, really? And these kids could really, really play. Right. And sing and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. We were just, our jaws dropped and we were kind of like, uh, what, is, what is that doing here? Yeah. <laughs> and, and what are we doing? Yes. <laughs> um, but... All that was kind of accepted, yeah, yeah, uh, and which was kind of kind of great. It didn't. It it wasn't until later where things maybe got a little more competitive. But at that point, it was everyone's just doing it. And it everybody's was doing it. it was everybody's supportive. Everybody's just trying to survive. And what, did you find that that people influenced their sounds? Do you remember listening to people and going like, "That's you know, that's interesting how they're handling that," and that like there was mutual influence going on. I'm sure there was, but it's uh, hard. You, I, yeah, you yeah, just kinda, but I'm mm, I'm not so aware of it. Yeah. Do you have friends from that time still? Wow. I don't think I do. I mean, yeah, yeah. Kind of some of the more artier people. Oh, yeah, right, right. Um, I sort of... Still I'm hang st- around? I'm still hanging around. I'm in touch with it, but... Uh, musicians, some of it... Musicians, not as much. They get pretty beat up, some of them. Some of them do. Some of them, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I listen uh, to the song Heaven a lot, because I think it's uh, hilarious. Mm-hmm. Was it supposed to be hilarious? Well, it was supposed to have a little twist. I has a little twist in the lyrics there. And <laughs> do you write for comedy I, sometimes? I do kind of. I if I can make myself laugh <laughs> right. or chuckle or go, oh, that's a, that's the craziest idea. Um, or yeah, I don't. Sometimes it's a very small laugh. It's kind of an amused, sure, sure. an amused laugh. Well, heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. Yes, no. I thought I can defend that idea yeah. as a concept. Yeah, but it is backwards from what right. What you right, expect. what the assumption is. Yeah. yeah, backwards from yeah the assumption. Right, and I, but I can defend it as an idea. Yeah, and, uh, I think it is defensible. Yeah, and so I thought it's not crazy. I'm not just doing this as a kind of crazy joke, but at the same time, it is kind of you get a little bit of amusement out of it. Right, right. But yeah. I like the idea that it's it, it's not offensive, and if you really think about it, you're like, wow, that is kind of true. Might be mm-hmm. a little boring up there. Yes, it's all good. It's all perfect, and it just never changes. It's all, all the same thing over and over again. And um, there's another song I think from that same album, album called Animals, where yeah. I had the idea of like, oh, you know, everybody thinks we should be. We think of animals as being like more pure, more ideal, yeah. more, less less uh, corrupted, whatever than right. we are. Yeah. And I thought I'm going to write from the opposite point of view that animals are <laughs> fucked up and. <laughs> Horrible. Annoying, yeah. <laughs> whatever. They don't know how to be, yeah. whatever. All, all the kind of things like that. And that, and you, somehow you put it into a song, uh, w- what sounds like an intellectual idea or a joke or whatever when you start. You put it into a song and you sing it and you, you've suddenly invested this, what might be kind of a goofy idea with all this emotion. Right. Because it's being sung. Yes. Being, with a groove and everything else. And... Which gives it a whole different meaning. It's not just like me telling you I'm going to write a song about this. Right. It has a more visceral feeling. Right. You're not just sharing an idea. You're yeah, making. Yeah. It has. It has. A, there's an emotion attached. Uh-huh. Uh huh. To this thing that is kind, 
kind of nutty. <laughs> yeah, and and also open for interpretation and yes. and able to affect everyone differently. Yes, that's yeah. the magic of it. So now it's I, I think that we can you know, without you know uh, getting hung up on on, on, on now I'm uh, self conscious about the past, but the relationship with Brian Eno lasted up till it still goes on. Oh yeah, right? yeah, I saw him a couple of weeks ago. Now, how did that start? How did that creative relationship start? Because it, st- it happened the second record and it w- lasted throughout your career. We were fans of his from Roxy Music and some of his other stuff that he'd done. The solo uh, stuff, right? Yeah, a little bit. Some of the solo stuff that we knew about. And this would be late 70s. Right. It was okay. quite a while ago. Another musician that we knew from CBGBs in downtown New York, this guy, John Cale, who was in sure. Velvet Underground. Right. We were doing, I think, our first ever London gig. Okay. And Kale happened to be there, but he'd seen us a lot in New York. And he brought Brian and said, oh, this is, Brian, you know, I think you're going to like this group. Right. And we got along really well with him. We just chatted and, you know, yeah, 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 blah, 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 blah. And we weren't talking about music. We were talking about who knows what. Right, yeah. uh, Which was exciting for us to have a kind of, in this case, a producer or somebody like that who could talk about other stuff besides music. Like what? Oh, Art? Yeah, art or uh, science or... Sure. The one thing that amazed me about him was he said that his favorite band was the Velvet Underground, spe- specifically because of, I think, the way that they produced, the, the sound sounded produced. Like, like, and I never really put it together how, why that would make sense, but it, when you listen to like Live in 69 or something where there's long periods of, of and you can hear the rhythms you know, mm-hmm. kind of layered up like that, you know, I could see how that would influence him, but it, it, at that moment... Like I realized that his his musical sensibility was was vast and and, and very unique. Mm-hmm. You must have influenced each other through this partnership somehow. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it was it was kind of mutual. He was kind of uh, shortly after that he was writing stuff that was his attempt to sound like us. Right, right. And of course we we were already fans of his stuff. So yeah, we started working together with him producing our records. And, and how does that like? I I never quite understand how. What what is that? Because when I listen to like My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, like the stuff you just did mm-hmm. with him, and then you listen to the the Talking Heads album, you know they they all are, are fairly different sounding. But I mean, what is that dynamic? How does the creativity work between the band and, and a guy like Brian Eno? You know, what does he What does he say? Just basically, what does he go like? No, could you turn that up? I mean, what what is it? There's a little bit of that. Can you turn that up? Can you make that sound a little more whatever? Yeah. There's a little bit of that, but actually not very much of that. It's more like the first record we worked with him on, it was, he basically just said, you guys sound great. My job on this record anyway is just basically to capture what you sound like live, but do it in the studio. And that was, that was Fear of Music? That was the one before that. It was called More, more Songs, songs about, about Buildings and Food. Okay. Yeah. And then Fear of Music was... Um, a record, our third record, so we'd come to the point where we were about to exhaust the early kind of material that we'd right. written and accumulated. So you get to the point of, oh, now we got to write new stuff, yeah. which is always the big kind of like issue with bands and musicians and whatever. Like, can you write new stuff or was it just like, I had one idea, it's, I've drained it and right, there's right. nothing more. Yeah. Um, and it's not stelling big enough for us to repeat it over and over again necessarily. Yes, not right. quite. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so we, were, we still had this incredible fear of going, recording studios. It seemed like a foreign environment. The third record. Yes, yeah. around that time, but just all, in general. And he sensed that. He, and so he said, okay, we'll record all the tracks at home in your, rec- at your loft where you, 
where some the drummer and bass player lived. We'll just bring up a, a remote truck, one of those recording trucks. Now you could do it on a laptop. Right. But it was at that point you had to bring in a, a whole truck. So it was a big deal. We're parking yeah, the truck outside. Park the truck outside, snake the cables in the window. So you guys are comfortable. Yeah, so we could be comfortable, which is a huge deal. Yeah. Because otherwise we would pl- the playing suffered and it sounded yeah. terrible. The right. sounds were terrible. We played terrible. This sound, we could actually kind of play and groove the way we liked, but it was the first time where on some of the songs... I had to then take the, those tracks and go home and make a song out of it. It wasn't a finished, right. it wasn't a finished song. So, uh, so you'd write in, you, you, the, the improvisation would be the writing of the song sometimes. Yes, sometimes it'd be an improvisation. Sometimes it'd be something that uh, I would say, you know, to the band, do this, do this, do, and then do this, or some, repeat some kind of jam that we did. Right. And I realized we can do that I can write lyrics and a melody over it, and voila, it's yeah. a song. And uh, I think Brian saw that too, and maybe he'd written in that way in the past as well. So kind of, you know, step by step, it kind of takes you to a com- not just... That's interesting. Not just turn that louder and make right. that softer, but your way of writing and... and Evolving creating. the sounds. Yeah, the, the whole thing evolves. It's layering yeah, in yeah. a way. Yeah, layering in a way, and creating things in the studio that right, way. Right, right. As opposed is, to coming up with a pop song yeah, and, and which, then going, pow, there you go, and boom. Yes, which is not to say that that's invalid, but just to say, oh, here's another way of working, and you end up, by working this other way, you end up with stuff that you would never come up with if you just sat down and tried to write a pop song. Right. You end up with kind of more kind of weirder sounds and sure. outer arrangements because it's you're not thinking about oh, here's the chorus or whatever. You're taking chances and you're jamming. Yeah. And so that was, that was great. Yeah. And then, like, and then you started to add, by, uh, by uh, uh, Remain in Light, then you're broadening out the musicians. Yes, we're adding other musicians. We're taking that concept even further where we go into the studio with almost nothing. And nothing. Gra- yeah, almost nothing, which nowadays I would consider an extravagance. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we were doing all right commercially. So we could afford to spend two weeks jamming in the studio and just saving the good parts. But that's when you, by, at that point in the studio, were you involving, how many musicians, did you bring in musicians to do no, certain things? No, it was things? basically just the four of us. Okay. Some other musicians would come in and do overdubs, but and it, it gave the mistaken impression that we were a larger band in the studio because when we then had to reproduce that live, we had to like double the size of the band. Right, because we'd kind of done all these crazy overdubs and with uh, with Rural, Bernie, Bernie Worrell and, and Fripp, yeah, those all those people. And Adrian Blue was a yes, part of that too. Yes, well, how's that guy doing? He's uh, he's doing great. He's like a record producer and does his own stuff in Nashville. Yeah, it doesn't a, mean country. It means you know he's right. Doing, oh, so he's down there. Yeah, like you know, I learned a, a lot about a lot of different people through you, through people that uh-huh. you like. That was the other thing that 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 the Talking Heads and David Byrne. You know, solo and with the heads, you know, brought to me as just a kid or as a guy who was trying to learn about things. I'm like, who's Twyla Tharp? <laughs> <laughs> yep. This record's fucking amazing. What goes with it? You uh-huh. know, like the the uh, uh-huh. Catherine Wheel. Yeah. I listened to the hell out of that record. Well, I never great. saw it. I never saw it. Like, and uh-huh. I was in college. I should have been seeing things. But like the knee plays too. When that came out, I'm like, I love this record. I have no idea. 
You know, like I know uh, Robert Wilson. I know there's ladders involved and it's yes, long. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, uh, and, I, and I got it. I read about stuff, but I wasn't getting out into the uh-huh. and doing it much. So that stuff blew my mind. But the whole, you know, burn Eno matrix of, of people like, you know, John Hassel mm-hmm. and, and, and Fripp and Baloo, these were all, you know, a type of music that was very, it, it, rarer to me. It was rare and yes, exotic. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that was, in a way, me reproducing, or us, reproducing kind of the experiences I had with the and transmission, ad- yeah, the adolescence, yeah. and whatever. You were sending and, out. The, it was your yeah, version it was like, of the now signal. Now it's my turn to do that. <laughs> you to bring to make people go like, "Where is this coming from?" Yes, to do what the same thing that happened to me, but now. Well, you did it. Yes, to some extent. Yeah. Like I mean, I'm because like, I've talked to other bands, like you know, and I know other bands have had problems with it. I have to assume at some point you looked out at an audience and said, "How is that guy like me?" Yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. What? Yes. Is this? Have I been misinterpreted in some way? Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, there wa- I remember that we had a song called Life During Wartime that had a chorus that goes, this ain't no party, this ain't no disco. What it was meant to imply was, I don't have time for nightlife because I'm, doing, I'm involved in urban revolution at the moment. Right. Excuse me. Yeah. But because of the wording, it, and it, it came out at the exact time where there was, it seemed to be this conflict between kind of disco music discotheques djs and kind of live hard rock right. music and right. it was it was like there was a lot of racism involved in that kind of schism uh-huh. but and so the song was picked up as being like an anthem an anthem of this ain't no disco yeah and we don't basically to say we don't like disco music right that's for whatever yeah fags and, and black people right and so but it was never intended that way. And right. I realized, ooh, things can really get misinterpreted. <laughs> you, uh, and how, how worried do I have to be about being clear? Right. Is this, gonna, is some, is this something that's really going to obsess me? And, uh, well, it's, a, it's a repercussion of mainstream success, in a yes, way. Yes, of course. And the ambiguity that's in, in music, a lot of in in music and songs, and uh-huh. that's, that's part of the greatness of right. the form. Right, is that it can be misinterpreted by morons and used as an anthem for negativity. Exactly. Yes, there you go. <laughs> That's a, the liability. Yes. yes, like whatever, Ronald Reagan wanting to use born in the USA. Whatever. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's tricky, huh? Mm-hmm. Did, that, did that make you recoil? I mean, did that, did that like once the, the top of uh, the talking head's popularity, was there an element of you that was like, I got to pull back and, and, and insulate in, in a different type of creativity? To some extent, yeah, to some extent, I felt like, I don't want to be a big pop star. Right. I, mean, I have all these interests and I want to maintain that right. and keep a kind of be a balanced, interested, curious human being and not be sucked into the whole world of celebrity and and repetition. Be, yeah, and repetition. And you then you're expected to do right. something like the thing you did before right. Right. or you always have to top it or it has to always has to be bigger and better or right. whatever. And I just thought, Oh, that's like a treadmill. I don't I'm not sure I want to get on. Yeah, and also just the fight, the 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 fight, you know, to 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 maintain and 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 uh, grow your creativity in the face of the record business. Uh huh. There are people who can do it. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, not forever. Yeah, usually not forever. <laughs> and yeah, I just thought, oh, I'm pretty happy. I'm not sure I want to. Right, and deal it, with that. It, and and I imagine that. When you guys were making music, the Chris and Tina, 
Jerry and you. That was very highly collaborative, right? I mean, yeah, you, for you, the most part. Uh huh. For the most part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It depended on the record. Sure, sure. Do you get along with them, all of them? I get along with Jerry. Yeah. The others, okay. the others, we don't get along. Oh, really? There's, yeah. Wait, just from old stuff? Yeah, kind of old stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's sad, right? It is sad. Yeah. You seem to manage to maintain an artistic integrity and keep growing creatively in all these different areas. I mean, you know, working with Twilight Tharp, working with the. Uh, with Robert Wilson, you know, outside of music, that that seemed to be at some point as compelling as, as just doing records. Oh, yeah, yeah. It had the feeling of the same feeling, some of it anyway, had the same feeling of the kind of excitement and uh, genre-breaking and curiosity and let's see what happens and experimentation that I felt music was supposed to have also. Right. But here it was happening in on in theater or dance or some various other mediums whatever it might be and i thought oh it's the same feeling the same vibe the same excitement that right. i first started getting from music right but it also exists in some of these other areas as well and you can be part of it and i can be part of that and i thought that's well that's interesting that's, that's thrilling well it's interesting because in music you can integrate like in a lot as 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 you grew creatively musically and you integrated a lot of different sounds and rhythms and textures from from other countries and 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 other types of music that with film music is an integral part of the process but it has to be collaborative so you you are actually part of filmmaking if you are asked to be exactly and yeah if you're doing that you you're expected to yeah collaborate give and take and and honor the vision of 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 the director i imagine and not everybody not every musician enjoys doing that right that kind of puzzle solving or, or creatively supporting the vision of but you like somebody doing else. It. Yeah, I thought it was great, a great challenge. It was really to, to solve that puzzle but do something kind of exciting at the same time. You probably have a little more freedom with dance, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And with some film stuff, yeah. the, the director will kind of give you kind of a little bit of carte blanche, and then uh-huh. they'll go, yeah, but that one didn't work. Right, right, right. Who, and you've worked with? Bertolucci. Oh, Bert, Bernardo and, Bertolucci, yeah, right. And then with Jonathan Demme a couple of times. And well, he's great. Yeah, though, You did some of the stuff on Something Wild, right? Yes. And then you did your own movie, which I loved. Well, thank you. I mean, I went and saw it immediately. I mean, like, I forget sometimes just how into you know what you do I am. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But, you know <laughs> no, but it's true, because like, uh. you know, I was very excited to talk to you. Like, what was that movie based on for you? It was based on... True Stories, we're talking about. Yeah, a movie's called True Stories, and it was set in yeah. Texas, and it fought a bunch of kind of quirky characters, all in a little town in Texas. Right. And their stories and their characters were based on a lot of uh, odd human interest stories that I'd read in the Weekly World News, okay. which is kind of one step down from the Inquirer. And you kind and, of played this sort of like uh, this guide. Yes, I was a guy from out of town. Right who was kind of the guide and was kind of interested in what was going on in this town, that they were going to have this little, this, they were going to put on a show, the people in the town. Yeah. Uh, I was interested in talking to them. I was fascinated by them. And, but, and to try and fit in, uh, because it was Texas, I, I wore a Western outfit. Right. Of course, big nobody, hat. nobody, yes. Nobody else, big hat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the jackets and everything sure. else. Nobody else wore a Western outfit, but for some reason, being the out-of-towner, I thought that's what I should do to yeah, blend yeah. in. Right. And that makes sense. Uh, it was it was kind of interesting in that. Well, I got to I had a great time doing it. I uh, really loved it. 
but I realized that in some places it was perceived as being uh, hilarious and Texans, Texans in particular, loved it. They did? Yes. They did not think it was, they thought the way it made fun of kind of the little quirks of yeah, Texans yeah, yeah, and all yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff, they loved that because they were actually kind of secretly proud of how kind of odd and quirky and sure. whatever they can be. Right. Um, other people thought that it was being deeply ironic and condescending, condescending to, yeah. to them, uh, which was never intended. It was more, the intention was more like what I described with the color guard stuff uh-huh. to kind of really celebrate the kind of uniqueness and originality and quirkiness and, and kind of vernacular creativity right. that goes on out in the middle right. of nowhere. And uh, I realized that, I realized this again just the other day too, that sometimes if you, you present things almost verbatim as uh-huh. what they are, because you're a New Yorker or whatever. Well, you're David Byrne. Yeah, and, <laughs> the, and some of the people who are looking at it are sort of whatever arty types as well. They bring the irony to it. Uh, they look at it and... and because they look down their noses, or they assume that I they right. assume that I look down my noses right. at people in a small town in Texas, then they view it through those goggles. Um, right, and they're not willing to take responsibility for their own condescension. They're going to hang it on you. Like they're, I yes, think, yes, yeah. And they just assume that I'm like them, and so I'm going to and right. I'm feeling the same way, and 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 that I couldn't possibly be, be embracing it and be embracing it. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's, well, that's interesting. And I wanted to also say uh, the knee plays. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where, where are you going with this? Well, that, I thought that, that was, was a, a celebration of American music. Yes. Yeah, that was uh, originally I wanted to... Like Gershwin almost. In, in some ways. Um, it was kind of problem solving. It was done for a theater piece, this Robert Wilson theater piece. I can't and imagine. I, What's he like? Is he still around? He's still around. He's still around. He works mainly in Europe. He gets more, there's more funding. For, you guys were buddies? I mean, did you... In, I worked with him twice. That's, oh, well, that's pretty... That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. good. Because it's, it's... Big projects. It's a big project, and uh, it can be pretty bizarre, the whole working Right, and it's thing. so weird, because I came to it just as a record, and I listened to it. I just got it. I had to go find it again. I got mm-hmm. it again, and I listened to it, and I love it. So it's problem-solving. What were you going to say? It was problem-solving. You knew that in this particular case, the theater stuff was going to be done in these short little segments. Mm-hmm. There was going to be, let's see, uh, scenery being changed backstage. So there might be a little bit of noise. So the music had to be loud enough that it would cover up that stuff. So I thought, okay, brass instruments. We're going to use, we'll use brass instruments. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you wouldn't hear the noise. Yes, yeah, so it would cover up the noise of the big sets being moved across the okay. stage. Horns. Need yeah. horns. Yeah, we need some horns to do this. That'll do the job. Horns and drums will do the job. And a lot of um, Bob's stuff is very kind of trance-like. And yeah. This is his, he's, as a visual director. This is part of the Civil Wars, right? Yeah. This. And so I thought, well, there's a lot of kind of the, the groove and the, in, in a lot of, Brass band music, especially out of New Orleans, right. that kind of thing, that has a little bit of that, but it's a lot funkier. I right. mean, it, it kind of moves right. your whole body, and it's not just um, a kind of a rep- repetition. And I thought, maybe I can do that. Maybe I can bring a little bit of swing and funk into right. into that kind of repetition and trancey kind of thing. And so I f- first tried to work on the material with the uh, Dirty Dozen Brass Band out of New Orleans, and yeah. I w- went down there and hung out with them and tried to do that. 
didn't work because I had, I had kind of everything written out. Yeah. And they they kind of you do head arrangements. They kind of work things out in their heads and through rehearsal and right, playing right. in clubs, oh, right. and they kind of work it out that way. And I realized, okay, this is a mismatch. Right. But you're not going to be able to get them to follow what you need. No. Right. And so I worked with you know other musicians, right. great musicians, and it worked out fine. And and you can write the music. No, but I could kind of do it track by track like i could right. play the whole the right. trumpet line on, on something else and that's how you built it out built it up that way and then occasionally would What's write these odd little kind of stories to right. go over some of the yeah. songs these odd little scenarios that who knows what that, that was about but i really enjoyed it but that's the kind of things he does where it's just there's it's it's about layers there's visual stuff mm-hmm. there's a, t- a layer of voice and maybe speaking or singing or whatever, and there's music. He and kind of other kind of the kind of arty or fringe of that theater world, they tend to think of that stuff as all running parallel. Like this, this, the, what you're looking at is one thing, what the way people dress might be another thing, the sound, the words, whatever. They're all running parallel, but they're not always telling the same narrative story. Right, right. Um, it's say, more so of kind of an impressionistic, right. surrealistic thing going on where it's all exists simultaneously and when it works it's very very ambiguous and you can kind of but the trick is the balance the trick is the balance and the audience kind of in some ways makes the meaning in their heads well you worked with the i mean your first wife was an artist right yeah yeah. and you work with her on true stories and she worked on true stories right yeah and did some i remember there was costumes and stuff right in my memory Mm -hmm. properly yes Oh, excuse me. There was a shopping. There was a fashion. Oh, that's right. Uh, the fashion, fashion show, show. in the right. shopping mall. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with the local people, right? Who made these kind of fantastic outfits. And what about like the collaboration? Like you were just so tapped in. Like you know what I saw just the other day. My buddy Dan, who used to own a record store here, Gimme Gimme Records, down on Eighth Street, and now <laughs> he, he's out in L.A. By me, he's got a the. I, was it speaking in tongues that Rauschenberg did the? the yes. Play? Yeah. I I love Bob Rauschenberg's work, especially his the kind of photo-based work that yeah. he was doing quite a bit of at that time. And so when we were kind of working on this record, I said to the band, what if I track him down and see if... Because there were, Andy Warhol was doing record covers. Right, and right. The other people were doing record covers. And I thought, oh, let me track down yeah. Rauschenberg <laughs> and see if he'll do, do a record cover yeah. for us. And he agreed, loved the idea. Um, but of course, he didn't want to just do, you know an image that we could then slap onto right. a cardboard sleeve. He wanted to rethink the whole idea of what the package so is. So you were in. You and were, I thought, yeah. I love that. Right. That's so great. Of course, it meant the whole the record release had to be held up. Well, I figured out the packaging and how to manufacture this turning. <laughs> yeah. Was that one of like me and my big ideas moments? Yes, me and my big ideas. And now how, look how complicated it is. Um, I mean, it was beautiful, but yeah. yes, it was a little more than we bargained for. Oh, that's hilarious. All right. So I like what you're saying about funk and groove and movement because like you, you have a very specific way of grooving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that became apparent like in live performance and, and also in the different types of rhythms that you, that you sort of talk about. It's interesting because like in talking to you and then just making assumptions about who you are, I wouldn't think that you grew up as a, as a dancing man. No, I did not grow up as a dancing man. I was yes, socially fairly shy. When did that confidence start to build? I hear it in your voice as you progress, but there was some point where you just were wide open. And you start and moving dancing. around on stage. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say somewhere early, mid, mid 
80s where the band expanded from being kind of this core kind of rock band to this big kind of funk ensemble. Right. And so the, the vibe on stage was more ecstatic uh-huh. in some ways trance-like that it was repetitive and you would just kind of, it would command you to kind of surrender to the groove. And did you need that personally? I needed it personally. It was kind of personally liberating. This was like, I didn't go to a shrink, but uh, yeah. this was that, that music was my shrink, and it kind of liberated me personally, both you know physically and mentally and psychologically, and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, "Wow, here we go!" I'm you know, it's a total cliche, but here I, I'm getting healed. The music is healing me. It's but turning in me. That, in. It's going to kind of help me out in my personal life. Right. I don't mean like introducing me to girls or whatever, but right. it's, it's really kind of helping me open up. Do open up. And have joy. Yeah, yeah, joy. I'm starting to have a good time. Whereas before, I would kind of have a good time, but it was also kind of this desperation. Well, you were like to be a sort of... (laughs) You can hear it in the the early stuff. It's desperate. Desperate, but also like awkward. Yes, yeah. And there's something nice about that awkwardness that people hear and they identify with because everybody has a little bit of it. Sure. I can never get that back. I'm glad it... It's gone. <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. I'm glad it was there and came out. But uh, yes, and then you move on to something else. And you, of grew course, and you, you grew up. It wasn't you grew up. You grew up and you ask yourself, well, did I lose the thing that everybody really liked? But I, no, I don't think so. You find something else. Well, also, I think that what you answered, and I think it's a good way to sort of move towards the end of this, is that you know, once you found that groove, once you found that joy, once you found that, that, that healing, it seemed to me that what you were doing through, you know, uh, pursuing and embracing all these different types of music and these different types of rhythm was, was making an attempt to be a channel to share all that stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you would, uh, which is kind of what I do now more than kind of pointing to myself. Right. I find myself doing things like this color guard thing and I'm doing this, and the Festi- book too. The book the is book fascinating. Is like, that. Yeah, the, there was a festival in, in August in England called Meltdown, which is basically you kind of invite a lot of bands, uh-huh. people to perform, and it's not a big money maker that, <laughs> that yeah. way of life, but it's really nice to be able to kind of occasionally exercise that thing and go and do what other people did for me and for you and say, check this out. Right. Check this out. You might like a curator. It. Yeah. That it's. Yeah, it gets overused, but it's yeah, but right. it's really nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, you got to be okay money wise. I mean, <laughs> I'm doing fine. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing fine. I'm well enough that I can do this kind of stuff. Well, what is good. going on here? I mean, we're at uh, what is it, Toto Mundo? Is that what Toto you're? Mundo is the name of this office? It's on Lower Broadway. Is it a label? Is it a, a no? Book? It's just a kind of it's just an overall thing. It's not a record label. I is it have a record print, label for a publishing while. label? I mean, yeah, sometimes we do. This books. is your office, though, right? Yeah, we do. There's books occasionally and other kind of projects, and so that's and like if we're doing like the color guard thing, right? It, that's the comes kind through of, here. That yeah. That's How's the this different than Luwaka Pop? Luwaka Pop was a record label. Okay, still exists, but my partner in the record label kind of does it somewhere else. Oh, you're still involved with it? Uh, I still I'm I'm on good terms with them, I get but it. it was eating up a lot of hours. Right and it's and money. A, right, and it's also interesting that like the towards the end of the the heads, and then into your solo career, that was sort of, like I because I was I was talking about it with somebody else like the other day. It seemed like like after a certain point, the music just got sort of like happy. 
we move through something. How yeah. was the how was the dissolution of the heads in, into your to the first record, which was more? Uh, what was your first back? Ray Momo. Ray Momo was yeah. I did a full Brazilian full on Latin kind of thing right. after that. Was that just to, to sort of like this? We're we're off in a different thing. You were off in a different thing. Uh, yes, and to say like, well, we didn't break up just because I wanted to do you right. know my own kind of Talking Heads record. I wanted I to, we broke up because I wanted to do something very was different. Was it bad the breakup? It was. It was not good, but right. it, um, I mean, there's there've been worse, right? But um, but it was not good. And I don't think any of them are really good, right? But okay, we got through it, okay. and doing kind of the Latin music was kind of taking that that whole kind of surrender to the groove, whatever right. thing, one step further. It's amazing. Um, I really enjoyed it. The touring part, especially with a big Latin band, was ecstatic. Wow. Um, although. <laughs> I think one of one of the guys at Warner Brothers Records said to me, "David, you're your own Yoko Ono." Oh my god, <laughs> that's that's probably the worst thing anyone could ever say to you. <laughs> Poor Yoko. <laughs> Do you know her? I've met her. Yes. Yeah, now, yeah. now let's close with uh, this uh, this St. Vincent business because uh, you know I interviewed her and she's amazing, uh-huh. and and you work with her yes. specifically. I have that record. What is it? Out, you know, out of all the people, like you know that. She's an American artist, mm-hmm. and you know, out of sort of like you know, you being an international uh, frequency and groove man, you sort of somehow land with uh, with Saint Vincent on a record and, and supporting her career. What was it about her? I was a big fan of her stuff. I'd seen her live and uh-huh. her first probably couple of records, and thought this this girl's really talented. Yeah. I'm not just talking about it as a guitar player, but just oh, yeah. she's really doing something really interesting and. Uh, so it was a little charity over on Crosby Street, this yeah. kind of AIDS place. That, uh, they would do these, in a used bookstore, they would do these little concerts as AIDS benefits, and they would invite different artists to collaborate. And I'd met her before, and then we kind of crossed paths again at one of those, those events where they invited Bjork and this group called Dirty Projectors to work mm-hmm. together. And Dave from Dirty Projectors, he just... He, when they did that, he just went with it. He wrote six new songs for this little tiny, you know, place yeah. the size of this. And I thought, geez, he's raised the bar awfully high for <laughs> just doing a, little, <laughs> right, a right, benefit right. in a little store. Yeah. Uh, but they approached Annie, that's her name, and I, and I said, well, if she wants to do it, I'll do it. And it's almost thought, like a challenge. It was a kind of a challenge. Yeah. And I said, okay, Annie, let's. She came and said, let's do it with, you know, a lot of brass instruments. And I said, that's great because then you don't have to have a big sound system in a little bookstore. Yeah. And I said, let's just try a few things. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, we quietly put it away and nobody knows it ever happened. But it, it, it worked great. And we never did do the show at the bookstore, but they got, they got benefit money from other shows we did. And... You made a record. We made a whole record and, it was, yeah. and did tour and all that. And it was, it was really exciting. And we kind of did this tour where we choreographed the brass players, where they were kind of moving around the stage and making formations and all this kind of stuff, uh-huh. interacting with us. It was really a lot of fun. Well, great, man. Uh, yeah, this is a great talk. I'm glad you made Thank time you. for it. And, Thank you. And, and uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, beside myself. <laughs> Thank you.
All right, that's our show. Wasn't that amazing? Wasn't that amazing? It was David Byrne. David Byrne. I talked to David Byrne, and he was amazing. God, I, I just love talking to that guy. It was, a, it, was a real, it was a real exciting thing for me. And it's funny because after the conversation, like a few days later, he, he sent me an email that said, do you remember my comment that some, uh, in parentheses, younger folks don't know me from talking heads but from other things? Well, this email story came in today, sort of a crazy extreme example, but here it is, and he forwarded me an email he received from somebody, and it said, I was at a bookstore in Chelsea Market on Sunday and overheard two high school girls talking. One of them picked up a copy of How Music Works and said, oh yeah, he's the color guard guy. I see him at like every competition these days. Isn't that wild? How do you get them into the talking heads? I think that everyone should know the talking heads. Anyways... That's our show. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF needs. Uh, please watch my show, Marin, on IFC, Thursdays at 10. Uh, and please uh, uh, enjoy yourself or something. You know, I hope. Oh, God. I got, I got to get ready. I got to go do a show. Boomer lives.